0: Well, good morning, Poetry Baptist Church. Uh, As y'all could probably tell from Poetry Pals, my son is a little spunky this morning, so if you hear me call Connor out during the sermon, uh, don't be surprised, okay? So, Connor, just letting you know, I'm watching you. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Word. Uh, Thank you for the joy and the privilege that we have to hear it, that you would reveal yourself as a compassionate merciful, sovereign, boundless, and perfect God, one who desires that His creation would love Him, that would have life in Him, and that would even condescend into broken, fallen creation as a human being, as God Emmanuel, God with us, that would dwell among us, that would set His face resolutely for Jerusalem, knowing full well that he would be despised and rejected by us, and that we would hoist him up on a cross, and that you would be willing to perish. Scripture teaches us the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, it was no surprise to you, and yet you still came. You gave us that model, that truth, and that picture of love, that it would endure forever forever. So no matter what our objection is, no matter what our philosophical, intellectual objection is to who Jesus Christ might be, that the cross would always remain triumphant. There is no argument that can prevail against your love and the truth of who you are. Help us to receive that today. Help us to live that out as we leave this place and go out into the mission field for your glory. We pray these things in your holy, sweet, and precious name. Amen. Well, we just finished up the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know about y'all, but this week I kind of went, We spent a lot of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if y'all go back and listen to sermons from time to time. I get comments and emails and text messages from people sometimes who do. And I appreciate that. I appreciate when we hear something once and we don't just assume we got it figured out. And we go back and we listen again and we study it and we listen and we hear and we study. But we finished up the Sermon on the Mount and today I'm going to read from verses 28 and 29 from chapter 7. And the word will be preached and hearts will be changed and the people of God will go forth from this place to glorify Him. Here we go. Matthew chapter 7 beginning in verse 28. Two verses. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Matthew seven twenty eight and 29. I know y'all are probably used to the really long sermons that sometimes I get up here and I preach for, and I can't say today that it's going to be short, but I only have about four slides. You guys are going to have to help me out back there. I only got four, so I really need them. My first point is that Jesus Christ is fully God. And if you look and you read this section you say, well, Pastor, I'm not exactly sure how you get to there, from Jesus saying, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. I'm not really sure how you get there. See, the reality is is that a lot of people are shocked and astonished at what it is that Jesus Christ has to say, but that's not good enough. See, Jesus, going way back into chapter 4, Jesus called these four men... He called them and then he began preaching and teaching and healing. And he went up to the mountain and all of the crowds were following. And if you close your eyes and picture thousands of people coming from hundreds of miles away who have caught word of this man, Jesus Christ, who can heal. They're coming to Jesus in order to have their physical problems solved. And Jesus calls these four men off to the side. Ones that he had just got done saying, Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't say, Come and follow me, and I'll teach you how to heal people. He didn't say, Come and follow me, and I'll show you how to make people be shocked and astonished and overwhelmed and in awe of the magical powers that I'm going to... in in. In bed and endow you with. He didn't say that. He said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. See, the problem is, is that we as human beings in our sin is that we don't really want Jesus. We don't really want Him as God. See, because if we acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ is God and He's Savior and all of the things that He said in Scripture are true, That means we're flawed. That means there's a problem. That means I'm not God. Contrary to what movies in Hollywood and Scripture, or not Scripture, but poetry, and all sorts of movies and everything that's out there in literature would teach us is that we are the captain of our own ships. We're the masters of our own destiny. Well... Maybe in a certain extent that's true because as masters of our own destiny, we are bound to be eternally separated from God and to spend it in hell forever and ever. So if by the master of your own ship and the captain of your own destiny, if that's what you mean, you are 100% correct. Jesus finished saying these things and the crowds were shocked and astonished. They were shocked and astonished because te- Jesus' teaching was a teaching of integrity. See, they were used to these scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the all these people who would say one thing, but then they would live out a completely, totally separate and different way. One of the phrases we use in churchy Christian cultures is, You're preaching to the choir. You're preaching to the choir. As if to say, the choir's already got it. But see, the problem is, we don't got it. We think that just because we made a profession, we think that because we read our Bible in our war room at home, we think that because we've kind of done these ceremonial things, that we're good. And we're the choir. Pastor Kevin, I don't need you to preach it to me. You're preaching to these other people who are here this morning. The word's not for me. Because I've already got it. See, what amazes me about that kind of mindset and that kind of mentality is that God does a work in my heart every week. When I get into the Word, and I think I understand it pretty well, if I want to hang my hat on you know, being prideful about having a master's degree, I think probably one of the most ridiculous things in the world is the name of my degree, Master of Divinity. It makes me laugh. Master of Divinity. How arrogant is that? My wife knows I got it from the school that I graduated from, the seminary, and it's still rolled up in the tube that they mailed it to me. I'm not hanging it on a wall. Master of divinity. Ha. You think you got it figured out. No, I don't, God. And that's why every week I come in desperate dependency to you, and I say, if I get up there, I'm going to sound like a chattering monkey. Please show up. Jesus, fully God. See, we don't need motivation. We don't need Tony Robbins. We don't, know, we don't need to know how to win friends and influence people. What we need is we need to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. And we need to follow Him. That's what we need. But see, the crowds were shocked. They were astonished. What we need is for God to intervene. Matthew 1, one Jesus, He's the new Genesis. He's fully God. I was talking to someone this week, and they told me, they said, they were listening to a sermon where the pastor was up there, he was teaching he started to tell a story about how he had this dog, and, and this dog that he heard about that somebody had, that somebody took a, a knife and they cut off one of the paws of the puppy. And the people in the congregation, oh, and they were horrified. And he tried to teach the dog something else, and the dog didn't get it. And so he cut off one of the paws on the other side. And everyone in the congregation, oh! And he said, and the dog still didn't get it. And he cut off one of his back paws. And everyone was horrified. And the preacher stopped, and he said, isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that as Christians, as believers, that we feel that way about a puppy... But when we talk about Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son, nothing. Flatline. We can talk about it in this very room, Good Friday, there were like four people present for the service. Four people. The day that we as Christians celebrate the Eternal Son going to the cross, and dying for our sins. We're horrified when we talk about a puppy that way. But that's just Jesus. That's in his job description, right? That's what he was supposed to do. Fully God. I don't know. I don't know. Jesus, not a good man, not a wise teacher, not a prophet the eternal Son, holy and fully divine. And not if, but since that's true, how do you respond? How do you respond? See, the only appropriate response is to fall on our faces, to confess and admit to God Almighty that we've got nothing, nothing whatsoever to offer Him. Nothing. See, the crowds were astonished, and they're shocked. But it does nothing for us, if that's all there is. Jesus is fully God. My second point, Jesus is functionally God. Jesus Christ is functionally God. See, function and life are indivisible. I spent a semester over at the Christian school here in poetry, teaching kids... Genesis chapter 1 and the whole point of Genesis chapter 1 isn't to prove the big bang theory it's not to prove that dinosaurs really existed it's not to prove the age of the earth all of the things that we as Christians feel like we've got to do we are compelled to prove to those people out there who are lost the age of the earth how the universe began if it was important to God then he would have put it in the book But what he wants from us is absolute, utter, total obedience. Where scripture is silent, shh. And where the word speaks, speak. And what do we do? The exact opposite. We make stuff up where this is silent. And where it says nothing, that's where we hang our hat. And we write books and volumes. And we go on circuits and and talk and pretend to preach about it. It's not in here. Shh. And when it is, go to the ends of the earth and tell people about it. Are we doing that? See, he's functionally God. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. And in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God of Holy Trinity gets together in that eternal, beautiful, perfect huddle, the original community group. And said, hey, let us make them in our image according to our likeness. You know why? Do you know why God did that? To demonstrate His character. He didn't owe it to us. He didn't need to do it. God wasn't looking for someone to play backgammon with. He wasn't sitting in eternity past bored... Gosh, if only there were these little creatures out there, these little monkeys, these human beings that could kind of, you know, tend to the garden and they could do all of this stuff that I don't really want to do. But these little people, these little miniature versions, these reflections of God. That he could demonstrate his character, that there's absolutely nothing that we can bring to the table but that we can glorify Him in and through our obedience. Function and life are indivisible. We talked about this past Wednesday night in our Fundamentals of the Faith class, some of the attributes of God, some of the things that we brought up is the holiness of God. God. And I think we as Christians, oftentimes we hear that. And maybe if you came from a background like I did as a Catholic, that being holy means that you walk around with a glowing circle above your head. That's what it means to be holy, is that you, you somehow, you, you walk maybe an inch or so off the ground, that maybe you have long flowing robes. I joke with my wife several times and I said, one Sunday I'd like to come up and I'd like to preach with, you know, some garment, some long flowing garment on, and maybe, maybe a pointy hat. And we laugh, and we say it's ridiculous, but then we look out at these people and these other faith systems, and the more elaborate the ceremony, the more elegant and all that, the robes and the decor, oh, ooh, is that what Jesus did? He was the carpenter's son. He probably had calluses on his hands a quarter of an inch thick from working with stone and with wood. He was a man. He wasn't the pasty white dude that we see in the pictures of medieval literature and art. Holy, separate Sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnisapient, omnipresent. And if you wonder what all of those words mean, it means that God is perfect. And He's boundless in His perfection. And this perfect entity that is Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity past decided that He would make us. They decided they would make us in our image and likeness. In Genesis 49.10, we read about this, Shiloh, the one who is to come from Judah's line, to whom all tribute and authority belong. Authority. Where did we hear about that word? Just a moment ago. When the crowd had heard it, his teaching was not like the others, not like the scribes, not like the religious leaders, but as one who had Authority. I'm just wondering, did y'all hear that? As one that had authority. See, it wasn't something that was given to him. It was inherent in him because he's perfectly God. And God made a promise that through the line of Judah, that this Shiloh would come to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant to be a blessing to all peoples on earth. And in blessing Abram and fulfilling that, he went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where he made a promise to the woman and said, there's going to be a guy, one man, who's going to come from your line. And he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Victory. See, he's functionally God. What if Jesus had just come and sat up on a throne? And waved a magic wand or his finger, or just had these thoughts of I'm going to wipe out anyone who opposes me, you know who would be left? No one. We'd all be gone. And he just sat up there on his throne and decided I'm not really going to do anything to demonstrate my compassion, my love, my mercy. I'm not going to do any of those things. Then he wouldn't have been a functional God because he made a promise. That he was going to come. And he did it. Jesus Christ is functionally God. Jesus Christ calls us. See these shocked people. They weren't the focus of Jesus' teaching. I don't know if y'all know that or not. Sunday school for weeks now, we've been talking about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go back and you read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew is talking, telling that Jesus is talking to four people. Four people. Two groups of brothers that are fishermen. And all the other people are standing around. And apparently, they heard what Jesus had to say because at the end, when Jesus finished saying these things... The crowds were shocked, astonished at his teaching because he was teaching like one who had authority. The shocked people aren't the focus. Disciples are. Shocked people are not the focus. Disciples are. I'm going to say it one more time. Shocked people are not the focus disciples are. See, the words of Jesus Christ, they may fall on hard-packed soil, but Scripture also tells us that when His Word goes out, it never, ever returns void. Ever. Chapter 4, Jesus called them to be fishers of men, and immediately they left. Chapter 5, Jesus began teaching them, those four men. He taught he preached, he healed, he demonstrated integrity and authority. So what is a disciple? Just shared with those little kids, well, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to say that you are a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not somebody who shows up to church once in a while, It's not somebody who from time to time, when the storms of life start to get you, that then you open up your Bible like it's some kind of a magical recipe book. It's someone who realizes that in our sin, in our rebellion, that our back is turned to our Creator. And we recognize and we realize the fact that it can't be that way. That when we act that way, what we're really demonstrating to God is, I don't really need you. I want your stuff. I want some of the good blessings that maybe you can pour out on me. And so if I pray from time to time, and I put my money inside of that cosmic vending machine that is God, and I hit the right buttons in the right order, then you better do your part and dispense some blessing down on me. That's what we communicate to God. Jesus calls us. Those are who are his disciples. Those that he reaches out with his word and he calls us and immediately we leave whatever it is that we're doing. See, oftentimes I think in evangelical circles in the United States is that we think that pursuing means that it's like, well, we just have to beat on the same person's door a thousand times. Jesus approached these men. He called them and it says, immediately, immediately. I'm not saying we give up on people. But see, the story of God's redemption is advancing. And you can either get on board or you can be left behind. you got to hear, you got to act. See, that's what it means to glorify God. Hear, act, respond in obedience, and repeat. Jesus calls us, to function as disciples. I think one of the problems that we have in our evangelical church in the United States, in the West, maybe even in the world, is that we preach this gospel about personal salvation. I remember early on as a Christian that oftentimes I would hear the only question in the circles, the kind of the the singles group that I ran around with was People throw, would throw around the word saved. When were you saved? How'd you get saved? What's your testimony about your salvation? Save, salvation. Save, 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 saved. They never really talked about discipleship. They never really talked about the mission and the ministry of God, about kicking down the gates of hell, about taking the word to the ends of the earth at whatever cost. And see what we do, what we communicate when we speak that way and we live that way. What it does is it tells new people that personal salvation is the top of the mountain. If you've been saved, that's it. Now we just get to be happy. We get to be happy Christians because we've reached the pinnacle. Not talking about a works based salvation. What we're talking about is the fact that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're right with God when in reality God would say to us as we looked at just moments ago. In verse 23, Jesus says, Then I will announce to them, even though they said, We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons. We did miracles. Didn't we do all that stuff? And Jesus says in verse 23, Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, lawbreakers. Personal salvation is not the mountaintop. Fourth and final point, Jesus judges. We have a God who intervened. We have a God who's not simply merciful. See, because mercy isn't enough. Again, talked about in this Uh, session last week about the attributes of God, and God can't just be merciful, right? See, if you're just merciful as a parent, and you never enforce the rules, if you never communicate to your children that there are consequences for bad decisions and bad behavior, and you're simply merciful, then what you are is you're an enabler. And we do not have an almighty enabler. He is merciful. He doesn't give us what we deserve yet. But unless you accept the gift of faith by grace, His mercy is only on pause. And then you're going to spend all eternity without it. He also gave us the option and the opportunity to respond to His grace because He's just. God is a just God. See, Jesus judges. He judges us. He judges our sufficiency in Christ in being born again of the Spirit. All throughout Scripture we read things like, all sinned and it falls short of the glory of God. All our righteousnesses or all our righteous acts are as filthy rags. All are without excuse. Through one man, all sinned. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Do y'all get it? Are you hearing that? All, everything. We can run from it. We can ignore it. We can deny it. But Jesus is going to judge us. It's on pause right now. Whether you're someone who's been on mission whether you're someone who just likes to share the gospel with people you meet at Starbucks or in the grocery store or whatever, the one question that comes up over and over and over again, why so much pain and suffering in the world? Why is there so much? Why would God, a holy, perfect, loving, merciful God, why would He allow so much pain and suffering in the world? did a lot of reflection and thinking about this before I kind of scripted out my answer. And this is what I came up with. And the truth is, is because we desire that, we desire pain and suffering more, more than we desire a relationship with God. Think about it. We'll ask the question, why so much pain and suffering in the world? See, we don't want it to be on us. We don't want to own that. We want to be able to blame God Almighty. Well, God, if you had made a better universe, if you had made better human beings, if you had done your job, then pain and suffering wouldn't be a thing. His ways are so far above our ways. And yet we think, we think. See, and ultimately it's because we desire autonomy, independence, We actually desire pain and suffering more than we desire obedience, submission, and a relationship with God. See, Jesus is going to judge us. Jesus Christ judges us. He's going to judge our sufficiency. He's not going to judge us based on our profession of faith. He's not going to judge us based on whether or not we got dipped in water what the temperature was, whether it was inside or outside, whether it was in a blessed baptistry, whether it was in this kind of church or that kind of church. He's not going to judge us based on our doctrine. He's not going to ask you if you're a, a five-point Calvinist. He's not going to ask you if you're a hyper-Calvinist or an Arminian. He's not even going to ask you about your actions or whether or not you're astonished. See, because our actions don't get us there. I really don't think Jesus is going to ask us anything at all. He knows. Is there integrity? See, when the people heard Jesus, when he had finished saying these things, the crowds were shocked at his teaching because he was teaching like one who had authority. There was integrity There was consistency. There was communion. There was harmony between what Jesus had to say and the way that he was living his life. See, that's what we're going to be judged on. We can say it all day long. I ask Jesus into my heart. We can sing the song. We might even be able to convince other people There are people who are pastors who stand in pulpits that say, come to my church on Sunday and I am going to share the truth and the love of God with you. And the sheep file in by droves and thousands and the sheep all sit there eating it up. And instead of really having a pastor, what they have is a ravenous wolf who's leading them astray. I was talking to somebody this week over lunch, and we were talking about how sad it is. See, because ultimately we're still responsible for our own decisions. I can't blame Joel Osteen because he's a bad preacher. I can point out the fact that I don't know that he is a preacher. I don't know that he preaches the gospel. I'm pretty confident that he doesn't preach the fullness of the gospel. But ultimately, all of the people who are sitting there listening to him and other prosperity preachers spew their garbage is that the ownership is on you and it's on me. God's not going to send Joel to hell for all eternity simply because he preached a false gospel and then he's going to let all of the people from his congregation in. Wide is the road that leads to destruction, right? And then there's a narrow gate and that gate is Jesus. Jesus. Is there integrity in your life? Is there the power of the Spirit? And are we producing fruit? I have just a couple of slides that I'm going to put up here. And this is just a summary. Now, I want you to look up there and I want you to read it. It says, Ministry is completely, entirely, absolutely, thoroughly, fully, totally, holy, and altogether Irrelevant. you're going to have some time to get all this so if you're writing down feverishly just relax because the next three sides look almost exactly the same except with just a minor word change at the top ministry is completely entirely absolutely thoroughly fully totally holy and altogether irrelevant lifeless useless when and if you look at the slide I want you to look up because not a whole lot's going to change. Just the very top. So if ministry is, then ministers are. See, because ministers are the people who do ministry, right? So we could blame it on the ministry of the church. We could blame the church. But ultimately, as ministers of the gospel, Ministers are completely, entirely, absolutely, thoroughly, fully, totally, holy, and altogether irrelevant unless... One more slide. Looks almost exactly the same. A church is completely, entirely, absolutely, thoroughly, fully, totally, holy, and altogether irrelevant unless... Unless... Intentionally... Actively and obediently functioning. What does that mean? Pastor, that's kind of abstract. Unless we're intentionally, actively, and obediently functioning. Well, if you have a bulletin with you, it's on there every Sunday, right on the front. Our mission. What does it mean to function? It means that as a minister, it means that as a ministry and as a church that doesn't have programs, but yet has ministries, that we're supposed to be pursuing, winning, and discipling the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for God's glory. If those gears aren't turning, that aren't cranking out that good fruit, if we're not really producing, we can gather here every Sunday, all the way to the end of eternity, and we've never done anything to glorify God, what is the point? We're nice to one another, We have potlucks. We have lots of nice people that come and help mow the lawn and paint the buildings and power wash. I guarantee Jehovah's Witnesses do the same thing. Christian scientists do the same thing. Help keep the facilities up. Is that the thing that distinguishes us from them? Or is it the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth? Are we pursuing the lost, deluded, and disillusioned? I heard somebody last week in Sunday school, they didn't know the mission statement, and I was thinking, well, all you had to do was flip it over. They were in Sunday school, and they were reading, and one of the questions said something about, what's the mission of Poetry Baptist Church? And they said, well, I think it's something about pursuing people, or something like that. Are we winning the lost, deluded, and disillusioned? Maybe you think, well, there aren't a whole lot more people packing in the pews. If you come today and you stick around for our business meeting, see, the fruit that we're producing doesn't necessarily have to be right here in poetry. The problem is, is that so many churches across the globe think, if we've got more people in our congregation, we're producing fruit. We went from having one campus to two. We went from two to four. Now we can't even have any more campuses. We have to have satellite facilities. And we're going to beam our message into people all over the globe, and we are producing fruit. Are you? Are you? Are you just duplicating what Jesus Christ, when he talked to the Pharisees, and he said, You cross over land and sea to produce one convert. And when you do, you make them twice the child of hell that you are. See, do we want to produce poetry, Baptist church people? Or do we want to produce disciples and lovers of Jesus Christ? Are we winning the lost, deluded and disillusioned? And are we discipling faithful fruit-producing followers of Jesus. Not trying to make good Baptists. Not simply with a goal of how many people can we pick on Sundays so we feel good about ourselves. If there were three people in here, and all three of them were people who love Jesus, and we were advancing the mission of God, I would take that any day over packing this place to overflowing, renovating our facilities, A stadium that packs 10,000 people and it's all superficial, ceremonial garbage. Are we discipling faithful, fruit-producing followers of Jesus? Our mission to pursue and disciple the lost, deluded, and disillusioned for God's glory. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Let's pray.